0: So, uh, this passage from Mark that I just read, this is an odd moment in the life of Jesus. And not just in the life of Jesus, but if you've been here for the last several weeks, in the plot of Mark's gospel, this is incongruent. Jesus has just crossed the border out of Israel into a region inhabited by people who are not Jews. Why? Because he wants to lay low for a bit. He wants to hide. He wants to get out of the kind of public discourse because because the tension is ratcheting up very quickly and Jesus is doing this delicate dance of announcing the gospel without getting crucified too soon. He's got to get the whole story out before he gets nailed to the cross, right? Right? But the story is offensive every point along the way. So he's trying to do this dance where he lets it out, but then he backs off so some of the heat can die down. Verse 24, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Right? You cannot hide a light under a basket. You can't. This is the glory of God in human flesh. He cannot be hidden. Mark's point, I mean, he's writing this 30 years later, looking back with a snicker, thinking, how could the glory of the universe be hidden by a house? Hands that built the stars can't be contained by wood and stone. Now, Jesus has just said some things earlier in chapter 7 that undermined the protective fence that the Jewish people maintain around their identity. We talked about that over the last two weeks. And what he said was so provocative, so politically dangerous, so risky to Jesus' life that he's got to get out of town. He travels north, and this is the farthest he ever goes out of the Jewish territory. Now, it's interesting, if you've been with us the last few weeks, or if you've read the beginning of Mark chapter 7, that that the subject Jesus has been arguing with the leadership of the Jewish people about is very specific. It's about clean and unclean. Who can eat with who? Who can eat with who? Who defiles who? And how do we keep strict boundaries around ourselves when we're an occupied nation filled with the infiltrator, the infidel? And here's a mother who has a daughter that has a what? But how does Mark describe it? An unclean spirit. See, the same issue is playing out. This mother, she's Greek by language and culture, and it says she's a Syrophoenician by birth. This means that she's neither a Jew in her religion or in her ethnicity. She's a pagan. And she hears about this wonder-working rabbi from Nazareth who's laying low, and everybody knows he's hiding, right? And in her deep love for her daughter... She crosses some cultural lines that are uncrossable. She does something that is absolutely shameful. And I I don't know how to help us wrap our minds around her behavior as being bad without you really understanding in your heart what it means to live in an honor-shame culture. There are just rules of cultural behavior that you and I sit in judgment over, that we've just got to yield ourselves to the plot of Mark and recognize that nobody there was sitting in judgment over these cultural rules. They were all living within them. What she does would be just like Alec coming to worship this morning in a Speedo. The nervous laughter and the images you're trying to erase from your mind right now... (laughs) as inappropriate as that is as in, as offensive as that is that this type of thing is going on with this woman you see she lived in her pagan culture in jesus in a patriarchal system and it precluded women from being assertive in their public life you, a woman just could not be publicly assertive no woman especially a gentile unknown and unrelated to this Jew, would have dared invade his privacy. He was in a house, and she walks into this house and throws herself at his feet, and that was against every cultural rule. It took more courage, more brassiness than you can imagine. It is not like somebody in our culture just kind of throwing caution to the wind. It is far more serious than that. And this woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus instigates a very odd exchange. Let the children be fed first. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So this woman, look back at verse 25. A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Do you feel the literature? Do you feel how Mark is saying she did this? Now, remember who she is. He interrupts the flow of the narrative as the narrator to describe her. So you feel the weight of what's going on. This woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. He's piling it up, piling it up, piling it up, who she is and how this is out of place. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus' response, He doesn't talk about demons. What does He talk about? Bread. It's not right to give the bread for children to the dogs. Do you see how Jesus is saying, we're still on the same subject here? (laughs) You're asking me to cast out a demon, but this is really about bread. This is the issue that nearly got me killed a few days ago and ultimately is going to lead to my death. This issue. Like I've said before, Jesus was murdered. Because of what he ate and who he ate with. And Jesus says, make no mistake about it. Me working to exercise this demon from your daughter is about that issue. So what's going on here? I believe that for our church to hear God's voice to us today, because the Bible is living, it's not a repository of timeless truths. It is so much more than that. It is the field in which is hid the pearl of great price. And as we as a congregation gather around Scripture and and intently gaze to Scripture, when we open our ears, Christ, the living Christ, will speak to us. And I think in order for us to hear the voice of God through this passage to our church, we've got to understand three dimensions to Jesus' cryptic response First of all, the bread issue. Jesus is refusing to allow us to turn our gaze from the larger theme and turn him into some itinerant miracle worker who's at our beck and call merely to write prescriptions for our little needs. He's constantly connecting the needs that are real to the larger issue of bread, Who is Christ and how do we have access to Him and what is He in our life? Remember back in chapter 6, verse 31, we began our Lenten journey in this room, Ash Wednesday, looking at Jesus miraculously multiplying a few pieces of moldy bread and a couple of sardines into loaves, That fed the masses. That's chapter 6 verse 31 through 44. And then we saw in chapter 7 verses 1 to 23. Jesus argues with the Jewish leadership about who can eat bread with whom. And now Jesus responds to a request for exorcism with this cryptic statement about bread. This is all of a piece. It's a single issue. And it is this. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus alone is the source of life. All of the other things, all of the other loyalties, all of the other commitments that you and I have cannot feed our souls. Christ alone is the bread. Now, secondly, we need to know that you shouldn't feed your dogs at the expense of feeding your children, right? That's an obvious statement. It feels weird here, but don't you agree with it in general? If you're struggling to pay the bills and there's hardly any food and you have to pick between your animals and your infant, what would any person do in their right mind? They would feed their children. Now, we all agree with the principle the use of it in this, in this situation feels quite weird. I mean, especially when you compound the fact that Jesus' statement is about prioritizing children over animals, and He's using that to say no to a woman who's asking help for her child? I mean, this is a weird scenario, a weird situation. Why is Jesus referring to this woman and her baby as dogs? It's because at this point in time there was an incredible tension going on between the Jews in that area and the Gentiles, the non-Jews in that area. In fact, we have recently discovered some archaeological and historical evidence that indicates this particular region of the ancient Middle East was buying up the bread from the Israelites and selling it back to them at exorbitant prices. So there's already a fighting atmosphere. And here's Jesus, a Jewish rabbi. And and Jesus is actually quoting what rabbis frequently would say in his culture about non-Jewish people. They're dogs. Now the irony here is that Jesus is giving voice to the point of view that he just argued against. right? With the religious leaders, he just argued argued with them about who's in and who's out and about how we must... They were saying we've got to build up boundaries and not cross these lines and protect our identity on an ethnic level by how we eat and who we eat with. So this woman comes and asks Jesus to do what He's been advocating, right? To open the kingdom to non-Jews and to demonstrate that. And Jesus articulates this offensive point of view that he's just risked his neck to contradict. I think what Jesus is doing, I mean, it's really cryptic. I'm not, I'm not trying to give you the sense that I've got this passage completely figured out, but I'm convinced that part of what he's doing is he's saying what any Jew would say in this scenario. He's saying, one, you're a dog and we're not. He's saying, two, there's a, there's a boundary between... You and us. Now that's the second dimension. I think Jesus... Because we've got to remember that Mark is writing this 30 years later, right? And he's writing it to a church in Rome that's filled with Jews and Gentiles. And they would all look and see Jesus having said that just a couple of decades before. And they would have seen that he was articulating the view that his interlocutors had just a few verses before. In other words, I like how Jesus gets a question and then he always goes for the jugular and he puts the real issue on the table. What's really at heart here is am I going to do this thing for you that I've just been saying I would do for you, but other people believe that if I do this for you, I've crossed a line I should never cross. Do you see what he's doing? He's forcing us to keep all of these passages together and to realize what's really at stake. Now, that's the second dimension. Now, I think there's a third dimension to this, a third layer to what's going on here. This early church, the people that Mark was writing his gospel for, 30, 20, 30 years after Jesus' death, they were conscious of the kind of thing we heard Sam read to us out of Romans chapter 9. They were conscious that during Jesus' short three-year ministry that Jesus' personal vocation was first to the nation of Israel. The Gentiles would be brought into the kingdom soon enough. But for the moment of Jesus' three years, it was vital that he's not getting distracted from his primary purpose. Jesus isn't denying that Gentiles can enter the kingdom. What's he saying? First, he's saying there's an order. First feed this group and then feed another group. He's saying that his personal vocation is to start with the Jews. Now, this is hard for us to imagine 2,000 years separated from the fact, but this plays out throughout the New Testament where the apostles and the first century church were deeply aware that there was an order to salvation history, that it began with the Jews, and then there was a moment. And it was at the crucifixion where that moment was over. Because who first comments that Jesus is the Lord at the crucifixion? A Roman centurion. And these early believers in Christ knew that in that moment, the line was crossed, never to go back again, where the gospel exploded Onto the world scene. Now, with these three lessons in mind, I'm going to draw them together in a minute, how they kind of all fit together. But with these three kind of dimensions of Jesus' statement in mind, I think that we as a church can hear the voice of God to us today. First of all, and I'll give this, I think Christ is saying three things to us. First of all, the crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And therefore, He is the world's true Lord. Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Right? All of the Gospels do this to us. How does Matthew begin his story of the life of Jesus? With a genealogy that goes back to the Jew, Abraham. This is what we heard Sam read to us, right? To the Jewish people belong the patriarchs, the promises, the temple. God has been... Look, you can't take Jesus out of his context. You can't rip him out of his genealogy and put him into another family tree. If you do, you change his identity. Jesus' identity is wrapped up in the fact that he is the climax of one story, the story of the only true God committing himself to save the world. How? Through entering into a unique relationship with Israel, by entering into a unique relationship with Zion, that particular hill, by entering into a unique relationship with Abraham, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of those three unique dimensions. God's relationship with a single person, Abraham, a single people, Israel, and a single place, Zion. That Jesus is taking all of that into Himself. He's fulfilling that story. And that His life and His message can only be properly understood as they flow out of the story of God's relationship with Israel. Our bookstores are filled with books of professional religious scholars interpreting the life of Jesus apart from that story and turning him into a nose of wax, anything they want him to be because they disconnected him from his story. They're saying all kinds of things. You can hear anything you want to about Jesus if you disconnect him from that story. You can hear that he never claimed to be God. You can hear that he wasn't really God. You can hear a, a very Famous book has just been written by a, f- a feminist scholar that has nothing to do with it, by a female scholar who's claiming that John was not even a Christian who wrote the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation and that what Christians say about Christianity, the early church didn't even believe. And how does she do this? With lots of initials behind her name that gives her authority in a chair at a charity, prestigious American university. How does she do this? The same way you can do it, by disconnecting Jesus from his backdrop. The one and only God that exists has fulfilled his promises to Israel by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to inaugurate, to kickstart his reign, his kingdom, his rule. Jesus' words about feeding some first, they referred to this tension, this temporary, short term, urgent mission that he had. Israel needed to hear the gospel before it was too late. Now, Mark's readers know that that short-term situation is over. And what they see in the Syrophoenician woman is an anticipation that the whole world will have access to the table that was marked out for the Jews only. That the crucified and risen Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again according to the Jewish Scriptures... Get this, he has been enthroned as the world's only true Lord. And what was anticipated in this Syrophoenician woman has become universally true. The king of the Jews has become the savior of the Syrophoenicians. And the Irish. And the Italians. And the Eltonians. Now, my question for you is, have you recognized this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the center of the universe? That this Jew who was murdered on a cross in his resurrection from the dead has been enthroned as the one and only true king of the universe, Do you believe this? Number two, the woman not only shows us in her interaction with Jesus that our church must keep Christ at the center, the one and only true King of the universe. We must tenaciously hold on to that. In a pluralistic culture, we must be bold. And we must confess that there is only one true God, and his name is Christ. Now, the second thing we see in her is a model of Christian faith when it comes to conversion. Look at her response to Jesus. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Notice two things. First, she refers to Jesus as Lord which could be just a term of respect. Or, it's the same word in Greek that was used throughout the Old Testament Greek translation at the time of Jesus' life, the Septuagint, that was used throughout it for Yahweh, the name of God. The name that Jews wouldn't even pronounce for fear that they they did something wrong and God would kill them. Lord is the Greek version of that. It's not a generic God with a little g. It is you are the one and only God who's given us his name. And back in verse 25, what is her physical posture toward this one? She is calling Lord. She has prostrated herself at his feet. Now, contrast this with the way the Jewish leaders has just reacted and responded and positioned themselves to Jesus. We see that this woman is a model. I mean, the, the contrast between her relationship to Christ physically and her posture and her language and the Jewish leadership, just a few verses before, the contrast couldn't be more stark. She is a model of what it means to become a Christian. What, how, how, does she, how does she enter into this? She comes in her nothingness. She, In her body and in her language, she recognizes her nothingness. She addresses Jesus as Lord. And then when he says dog, she says, you're right. Right? She doesn't even argue. She doesn't say, I'm not a dog. What does she say? Yeah, you're right. But even a dog can get a crumb. That's who I am. And that's who you are. And I'm. A, this is. Isn't this? Do you recognize this passage from the prayer of humble access that we pray every Sunday right before we come to the table? We are not worthy even to receive crumbs under your table. What are we doing? Well, our church tradition has given us a prayer that says she's our model. May, put yourself in her shoes. Approach this table like she approached Christ. If you do not approach Christ like that, believing that He is Lord, and recognizing your nothingness. You cannot enter his kingdom. You cannot become his child. This is a model for what it means to become a Christian. Have you come to Jesus? Have you approached him embracing the incredible gap between you and him? Owning in your heart your nothingness? Or do you bow up at those words? being called by the creator of the universe, that you're not worthy. Does that bother you? Does that strike you as rude? Do you want to rise up? Or do you, like this woman, say, may a couple. Right. That's who I am. And who you are is the one true God that has revealed Himself to Israel. And through your death and resurrection, you're enthroned as the true Lord of the universe. Have you admitted your brokenness? Have you opened your heart to Christ in faith that he alone is the bread of life? That nothing else can heal and satisfy your soul. That you do not deserve him. Have you thrown your heart open to him, completely relying on his mercy? Is this what Lent is doing to you? I hope it is. I hope it's leading you every day, every morning and every evening in the devotions that our church is using to kneel before him. Do you actually do it? Are you actually getting on your knees, using your body to say to your soul, get down, prostrate yourself, humble yourself, You're in the presence of the King. Number three. This woman, her exchange with Jesus, through this passage, God is saying to our church, we must tenaciously hold the center, Christ the center. Through this passage, God is saying to us, here is how you come into the kingdom. And thirdly, this woman is a model of Christian faith in prayer. Now, you've got to put yourself in the, in the, in the shoes of, G, of, of Mark's readers of the gospel, right? We're not just looking at the historical event that occurred, but we're looking at how these first hearers of this gospel story in Rome would have been struck by this exchange. In that culture, remember, she is violating Jesus' honor by invading his privacy and asserting her needs. It's not our culture, but that was the culture that they were acting this scene out in. So given the utterly shameful behavior of this woman in that culture, do you see how incredibly shocking it is that this is the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus loses an argument? Not only, I mean, just right, every time Jesus gets in an argument, right? He bests people, and you've got these, these phrases about scribes and Pharisees arguing with Jesus and things like, they were astonished, you know, they, couldn't, they, they dared not ask Him another question. At every turn, He arm-wrestles them to the ground in the argument. But here's a non-Jewish woman who comes to Jesus, and Jesus refuses her, right? And she argues back, and what does it say? Look how it describes, and He said to her, for this statement, because of the way you've argued. Your daughter is healed. He grants her request. Why does he grant her request? Well, he tells us. Because of her faith-driven argument. This is a remarkable turn of events for one who has not been bested at any turn in the story. (laughs) I believe that at this moment in the life of the Church of the Incarnation, we did not pick this passage for this Sunday knowing where we would be as a church. I believe with all of my heart that God is trying to teach us through this passage that He is challenging our passive prayer life where we approach God and ask Him for something, and then walk away with this evangelical, faithless piety. Thy will be done. What if she had said that? Your will be done. I asked you, God, now it's up to you. It's in your hands. You're going to do what you want to do anyway. Do you see how the emphasis on the sovereignty and power of God makes us faithless prayers? We offload our job... Onto God's sovereignty. Look at it this way. She is not the last person who has come to Jesus with an urgent petition only to hit a brick wall. What do you do when you're praying with all of your heart and you hit a brick wall? Do you back off in some kind of theological judo move saying God is sovereign? Or do you argue your case? It's her response to Jesus' refusal that is our model for prayer. She's neither discouraged, nor disheartened, nor letting herself off the hook. She perseveres with humble boldness, right? Yes, Lord, you're right. But somehow what she has heard about Jesus has given her this profound intuition that he cannot be indifferent to her plea. She refuses to accept, so she refuses to take no for an answer and her boldness, her persistence is rewarded. Now there is a clear lesson in this. For us, the Lord does hear our prayers and even His apparent refusals are meant to awaken in us a tenacious faith. See, I think Jesus' cryptic response was a test that gave her the opportunity to have faith. Did you know that there are only a few sayings of Jesus that are recorded more often than his reassurance that if we ask in faith, God will answer? God Himself is calling our church right now in this season with regard to the issues we are practically facing, the issue of our need for a building. We are two months away from being homeless at any given moment. Our landlord can say to us, you have to leave in two months. We've only found two options for buildings to move to. One is rent for $3,600 a month, four times approximately what we're paying now. The other is to buy a building where the note would be lower, but the risk is greater. And on this Sunday, we read this passage. Now, God's put us in this predicament. One year ago, we were worshiping in my house with less than 50 people. We fit in our living room then we couldn't fit there anymore. Now we're here. Now we have 107 people regularly committed to worshiping with our church. We have 105 chairs that we own that fit in this room. Twice in the last several months, we've had more people than chairs. God has put us in a predicament. We can't stay here because of what He's doing to us. And you know what? We can't leave because we don't have the money to leave. So one way to approach this is to say, God, please give me a building and then walk away and accept His answer. But while we're going through this journey, we're looking at this woman and we're learning what Christian prayer, not deist prayer, but Christian prayer is all about. You see, the kind of prayer that doesn't aggressively pursue God, that's deism. That is not Christianity. That's not the idea that God has come close in Christ and that his answer deserves another answer. Could it be that the reason many of us do not have prayers answered more frequently is that we misinterpret God's initial lack of response? What if this woman had accepted Jesus' initial proposal? My question for you is, do you pray like this woman? Do you present your case to God? and then argue it out of a deep faith that he hears and he cares and it matters. As a church, we've got to learn how to pray. And I'm not convinced we know. What's interesting to me is that we do this kind of praying in deathbed circumstances, right? I mean, all of us have done this kind of praying when the chips were down and the child was about to die, right? Or the marriage was about to fail or the bills were not going to be paid. You've found yourself here before. But what God is saying to us is He wants us to pray like that for our daily bread, not just the emergencies. Could it be that God has not yet got us out of this building because we've not yet prayed this way? I think that this pregnant moment we're in is God provoking our faith. And what greater gift to a church at its beginning than to have to live by faith? We need to pray. God, you put us in this predicament. You have grown our church. It is your glory for our church to be established, committed to you at the center in the heart of this town. Now, God, here's where we're going. This is what we're going to do because it appears to us that you're leading us there. So we're going there in faith. Do not let us be put to shame. Supply our needs. Now, just to get really personal. Okay. So we've got a building that we can buy that we can put the money together to buy. But our problem as a church is we're not meeting our monthly bills. Our monthly budget is 15,000 or so dollars and our monthly income through tithes and offerings is 10,000 or so dollars. There's a $5,000 gap every every uh, month. So over the we've been trying to fundraise and, and secure that $5,000 deficit. And one of the ways we've done that is we've gone to um, our larger Anglican denominational body and we've asked them to fund us for the next 18 months in that deficit to give us between 90 dollars and $100,000 over the next 18 months, which we believe from the very beginning it takes three years for our church to get self-sufficient. It's like starting up a business. Um, Friday? Friday morning, they called back and they said, yes, we'll give you $5,000 a month for the next six months because we don't know thereafter what our structure is. Long story about that. Here's what's interesting to me. It was an ambiguous answer from God. We as a parish council have been saying, if we can secure our budget over the next 18 months, we can buy this building. And God said, here's six months of security. So what do we do as a church? I really don't think it's a coincidence that on the Sunday we together are listening for His voice through this passage that that just happened. See, I think, here's what I think God is doing. I think that God is saying, here's your daily bread. Here's enough to let you know I'm on your side but I'm not going to let you go into a situation where you don't have to beg me for the way forward. I think that's the case. I'm not trying to do some weird like indirect manipulative thing of saying we've got to buy this building. I I'm, 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 promise you what I'm saying is what I mean. I think that's what God is doing. And I think what we've got to say to God Do not let us be put to shame. And we can't rely on His sovereignty to the exclusion of our responsibility for prayer. My question for you is, do you do this? Do you really believe in your heart that God acts differently when we pray? Or do you believe that God's going to do what He's going to do and prayer is more for its psychological effect on you as the prayer than it is for its effect on God. See, it really boils down to that. Who do you believe prayer is changing, God or you? If you don't believe prayer is changing God, you will not be like the Syrophoenician woman. Now, I don't know how to work out all of the implications of that, but I know it's the story of the Bible over and over and over and over again. I mean, listen to this astonishing passage out of Luke chapter 18. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man... This woman keeps bothering me, so I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus, look, God is clearly not an unjust judge. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that widow woman's pestering approach to the judge And this comes up over and over and over in the Bible. He does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer influences the action of God. If you don't believe that, you're siding with Jefferson and the other deist. You're not siding with the Christian tradition. Prayer influences God. This is what it means to say that God answers prayer. Where are you in relation to this reality? Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus that He alone is the world's true Lord, that He alone is the bread of life? Have you approached Him with that belief, fully opening your heart to Him? Have your children? Have you led your children to do that? Have you showed them with your very life how to do that? And do you pray? Do you really Pray. If you don't, in all love I say to you, you are offending God. Prayer is the primary way we acknowledge who the real God is. That He has come in flesh, come near, and He offers a relationship to us. Do you pray with humble boldness? Do you make specific requests? Do you vigorously persist in advocating those requests until God answers? Because God commands us to do that. He commands us to pray. He gives us examples of how to do it. I believe that God is trying to lead our church into this passage. And He's given us our own child that we must pray for who is dependent on our faith. I believe it's happening in many of your lives individually and I think it's happening in our life as a church. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes.